Hey everyone, my name's James, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new here, welcome. We're so glad that you would join us tonight. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about this question, why should I listen to God about sexuality? Who is he to tell me who and how to love? Uh, maybe that video already offended you, um, maybe it resonated with you, I don't know. But I hope that tonight you might hear what God has to say and be challenged and encouraged. Um, and tonight, my hope is that God's word will have something to say to all of us. Uh, that's particularly challenging. Uh, a couple of things before we start. I wanted to mention we've got some books available up the back. Um, we have two copies of Is Jesus History Left? So if you want to wrestle through whether the Bible is worth listening to start with, isn't it just a fairy tale? This is brilliant. Written by a guy with a PhD in ancient history who lectures on the life of Jesus at Sydney University. Really worthwhile. So that's 15 bucks. Um, this book, Confronting Christianity, has a chapter in it called Isn't Christianity Homophobic? Uh, it's written by Rebecca McLaughlin, who herself says that she's had same-sex attraction for pretty much her whole life. And so she tells her story and the story of a friend of hers from a very different background, both of whom were same-sex attracted. And uh, the chapter in this is very much well worth having a read of. So I'd encourage you. It's 25 bucks, so it's well worth it. Um, last thing, before we read the Bible, you might see around the trap these little cards, uh, Look into Life with Jesus. Starting on the 26th of Feb, we're going to be running a course called Life. We're going to be looking into life with Jesus. If you're someone who's exploring faith or if you've got friends who'd like to explore what it means to follow Jesus, can I encourage you to take one of these, invite them to it. It doesn't have a time on it. Uh, that's because we haven't finalised it, but it'll be somewhere between 7 and 7.30, all right, and that whole time will run for no more than 90 minutes. Um, yep, so please invite some people along. All right, we're going to read two parts of the Bible to start off tonight. The first one is page one, Genesis one. And if you've got a Bible, please turn there. Genesis one, this is uh, the first creation account in the Bible, first chapter of the Bible. And I'm going to read from verse 26 through to the end of verse 28. Let me have a read. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, second passage we're going to read from the start of tonight is 1 John chapter 4. So sort of go to the opposite end of your Bible. If you hit Jude or Revelation, you've gone too far. So 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to read verse 7 to 12. All right, let me have a read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. All right. Tonight I'm going to be looking big picture in terms of the question around sexuality. And so if you have questions that I don't answer frustratingly, you can text them in. There's the number on the screen. Uh, And we'll spend some time at the end of the service having a look at some of those questions and answering. On a topic so contentious, there's a good chance that I'll offend lots of us tonight. I haven't set out to do that. But I want God's word to press on all of us. And so can I encourage you, I, if I'm unnecessarily offensive, I don't, I don't, I'm not aiming to be at all. So please show grace. How about I pray and then, then we'll get stuck in. Let me pray. Lord, help us to hear clearly what your word says and what it doesn't. Help us to hear all that it says, that it might press on us, regardless of tonight whether we're Christians or not, regardless of sexuality or orientation. Help us to see that what your word says is actually good news for all people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like was mentioned in that video, for many in our culture, what the Bible says and the Christian view on sexuality is a huge blocker for faith for many people. And think about it. Why should an ancient book finished roughly 1,900 years ago, why should that have authority over my love life? Why should that have any authority? Who is God to talk about and have authority over my love life. And the public discourse around the topic of sexuality makes it all the more difficult. We've got Israel Folau posting things on Instagram and saying that the bushfires are the result of Australia's immorality. We've got prominent conservatives who wield truth like a hammer. We've got some people claiming to be Christians who say the Bible doesn't say stuff that it says. Confusion reigns, vitriol reigns. And many people, and I would say especially Christians, seem to forget that this is a deeply personal issue marked by significant pain for many people in our society. I've got a few ambitious aims tonight, so here's what I'm going to try and do. You can judge whether I actually do it, but hopefully it'll help make sense of where we're headed. I want to help us understand our moment and our place culturally because we don't live in a vacuum and our culture has loads to say on the topic of sexuality. And I want to, I want to help us understand what the Bible does say and why. Because if I'm going to answer the question, why should I listen to God about sexuality, I need to know what God says in the first place. Not just what one random person on TV says God says. Not just what others say, we need to look at what God actually says. And my hope is that you'll see that it's offering a better picture of human flourishing than what our culture offers. If you're here tonight exploring faith, I want to help you wrestle with this because this is a big issue. For many in our society, the Christian sexual ethic is not only bad but immoral. And I want to help those of us who are Christians think and act in line with Jesus and in line with scripture, to offer help and hope to those who in this room might be struggling with a whole range of issues related to sexuality. Uh, I can't do everything. I might fail in a few of those. We'll see how we go. But here's the beauty of tonight. 
If there's a burning question you have on this topic that I don't answer, and I can promise you there are lots of them that I won't answer tonight, you've got your chance to ask them. All right, so let's begin with our current culture. I think it's fair to say we live in a highly sexualized culture, yeah, where sex and sexual gratification is so important to many when it comes to living a whole and full human life. Our story is celebrated. And our stories in the TV series, in movies, they often celebrate the couple finally getting together and consummating. That's the moment. That's the climax. That's the woohoo bit is when the couple gets together and sleeps together. It's rarely about the couple remaining committed through the hardship of disease or when sex isn't so satisfying. Sex and gratification is ultimate. It's why our men's and women's magazines have tips on being a better lover in bed, not tips on serving your partner. And we use sex to sell everything in our culture. It's used to sell cars, which is weird, and watches, which is weird, and muesli bars, which is even weirder. (laughs) Sex sells. It's used by marketers to sell everything. At this current point in time, pornography use is ubiquitous, especially among young people. The age of exposure to pornography keeps going down bit by bit. Now it's around 11. I've got an eight-year-old. That's a bit troubling. Same-sex marriage is now legal in our country and a large majority of our country support it. The shame culture of years gone by where for someone to come out as homosexual has now started to change. In fact, to oppose anything related to homosexuality will often lead to social media shaming. For many, this is a sign that our culture has gone to the dogs. We need to go back to the good old days. And for others, it's a sign that our culture has arrived, a cause for celebration. Interestingly, Despite how sexualized our culture is, a bunch of recent studies suggest that we in the West are having less sex than ever. We watch more of it. We watch stories about it, but ourselves not doing it as much. And before we critique the way our culture has got, there actually, I think, has been some undeniable good in terms of the sexual revolution of the last 70 years. That might make some of you gasp. But think about it, there's a greater willingness to talk talk about sex. The fear and shame culture of years gone by when someone wrestles alone privately in a torment of shame and despair is less likely to happen these days, and I think that's a good thing. I think that fear and shame was unbiblical. The exposure of sexual abuse, the courageous pursuit of justice... It's a wonderful thing. Our willingness to talk about sex has brought many things out into the light. Our concern to protect people from sexual abuse is an undeniably good thing. I think the biggest struggle for many of us as Christians is that idea that Christian sexual ethics used to be seen as moral and good and now for many they're seen as immoral and even dangerous, suspicious. And as a culture, we have really lost the art of disagreeing agreeably. 
Our worlds become echo chambers. You jump on Facebook and like certain things enough, they end up feeding you the same things that you already like, which means you end up in a world where all the people who say the same things as you, you all get together and just agree with one another about how right you are. We do that with friendship too. Our culture, many in our culture, believe that to disagree with someone is to hate them. Now, sometimes it is, but often it's not. Disagreement and love are actually possible. I mean, ask any parent in the room. Our parents disagreed with us on many occasions precisely because they love us. And because we are a culture that prizes freedom so highly, we actually use our freedom a lot of the time to just associate with the people who are like us. One thing that one author has noted is that small groups like families continue in the world, large groups like Facebook continue in the world, but intermediate-sized groups like us are in decline all over the Western world. And these are the places where you come face-to-face with people who are different. For us here, what draws us together in common is Jesus. But if we're honest, there's a lot of people at church that we go, what's going on with them? We're a different bunch, but we're pulled together because we're united in Christ. But broadly in our culture now, you don't have to, you don't have to engage with people on that level anymore. And if you avoid people who are different from you for long enough... The danger is that you begin to imagine them a certain way. You begin to demonise them in your mind. You imagine them worse than they actually are. And Christians are as guilty of that as anyone. And we Christians, we've responded to these changes in a myriad of different ways. Some of us have just railed about the good old days, but truth be told, royal commissions tell us they weren't that good. Some people view... Uh, The LGBT community is the enemy and just pile on shame. Many of us have tried to take the moral high ground, I think, hypocritically. We Christians have lots to repent of. We've got to own the fact that over the last however many decades, many people claiming the name of Christ have perpetrated great abuses. We've got to own it. And we've got to own the fact that many of us have been responsible of being individually cruel of using terms like gay as a byword, as an insult. See, our lack of compassion towards many hurting people is shocking. We're not always known for our love. We lack compassion. We're not really known as good listeners. And even if the LGBT community were our enemies, well, Jesus has something to say about that, doesn't he? He tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And while some of the vitriol coming from all sorts of corners of society these days towards Christians is undeniably awful, the reality is for Christians over the last, say, 50, 60, 70 years, we have much to apologise for. Now, one of the most powerful tools in our world to bring about cultural change is not scientific studies. I don't know how many of you have ever read a scientific study, but if you have, I doubt that many of you have gone, wow, my life life is radically altered and now our culture is radically altered. 
Plenty of scientific studies say all sorts of things that are verified by scientific communities that people say is a load of garbage. But stories, stories change people. Think about TV shows. TV shows over the last 30 years have normalised a whole lot of different sexualities that previously were shunned. In the 90s, I mean, lots of you won't have heard of these shows, shows like Will and Grace or Queer Eye for the Straight Guy brought homosexual identity into mainstream pop culture. More recently, shows like Transparent have brought other issues into the mainstream eye. And often what Christians have done is they counter stories with things that the Bible says, facts, like God says this is what marriage is or God says this is where sex should be. And funnily enough, people's hearts aren't captured by that. They're captured by stories. And I think what we Christians have failed to do, especially over the last 20 years, as great cultural change has happened, is we've, we've tried to counter story with truth and facts when the Bible actually gives us both. The Bible speaks to both the head and to the heart. It gives us truth about God and who we are, but it also frames it within a story, a true story that we're drawn into. And so that's where I want to turn now, to turn to what the Bible says, a mixture of truths about sex and marriage and God's design for us as human beings, but I want us to view it in the context of the great story of the Bible. Because what we find is marriage at the start and at the end And God is trying to teach us something profound about us and him through the illustration of sex and marriage. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. I read this earlier. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. Verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Page one of the Bible, God says to us as humans, you are made in my image. And an image is not that we look like God so much as that we represent God to the world. We're called to rule in his stead. We're meant to be like the ambassador or the vice regent of the ancient world who carries the king's signet with him. He creates us male and female, and in verse 28, he blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. The implication here is from Genesis chapter 1 is that he creates humans as sexual beings. I mean, how else are they going to multiply? I'm pretty sure we don't have to have that conversation tonight. If you do, ask your parents, enjoy that one. But the implication from Genesis 1 is that God creates humans as sexual beings. He creates sex and sexuality. And in Genesis 1, he looks at what he made and he said it's very good. Christians sometimes forget that. We think sex is the dirty secret that we should never, ever talk about or think about or suggest that anyone ever has it. It's also important to note that this concept, this idea that we are made in God's image is the primary identity marker in Genesis 1 for humanity. It's what distinguishes us from the rest of creation. And in Western history, it has been the foundation stone of ethics. The reason in Western culture that humans matter is for millennia 
societies have believed that we humans are made in the image of God. We have an inherent dignity and value and worth because we, each of us, represent the king. And to mess with the king's representative is to mess with the king himself. Which means, regardless of gender, age, race, class, sexuality, all people matter. All people matter to God. Now, if you turn over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, we have an alternate picture of creation with a different focus. God creates the man from the dust of the earth, and then God says these words, it's not good for the man to be alone. He's not saying, because what he'll do after that is make a woman and they get married, but he's not saying that everyone should get married. It's saying that humans need other humans, and if this man is going to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth, he's going to need a woman to do that. It's the way that God designed things to be. Human flourishing needs more than one human. And it's here that the Christian understanding of marriage is grounded. In chapter 2, God makes the woman out of the man. God presents the woman to the man. I think it's one of the reasons why fathers present their bride to that they walk them down the aisle because this is what God did at the start. And in verse 23 of chapter 2, this man sings a song because Prior to that, he was naming animals. God makes the animals, brings them to the man to see if it's a suitable helper, and he's saying, I do not want to marry her. And finally, he has a woman, and he says, yes. And then verse 24 and 25 are key. Have a look with me. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. From this, both Jews, saints and Christians believe that this passage gives us the foundation of marriage, that marriage is a lifelong commitment of a man and a woman to one another in the covenant of marriage. Covenant in the Bible is the most serious promise you can make. In the ancient world, to make a covenant, you don't make it, you cut it, and if you break the covenant, you get cut, you die. The closest thing in pop culture, I think, is the unbreakable vow from Harry Potter. It's the most serious of promises. And this idea of one flesh, I mean, it might make a teenage boy giggle. There is a sexual illusion there of the one flesh that happens in sex. But it's a picture of oneness and intimacy that is not simply physical, but also emotional, relational, spiritual. They're naked without shame. And the idea for Christians is really simple. The idea is you don't get physically naked with someone until you're willing to be emotionally and relationally and spiritually naked. It's that in marriage, nakedness represents everything. Nakedness without shame, vulnerability and openness where you are fully known and fully loved. To do otherwise, to embrace physical nakedness without relational emotional nakedness would be to miss out on the fullness of what God designed for human intimacy, to miss out on the deepest human relationship. And so right from the start of the Bible, this becomes the boundary marker of what God says in regards to sex, that sex is for a man and a woman in marriage, and the Bible affirms consistently from start to finish that all sex outside of this whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, is sin. 
And for many in our culture, that is offensive and it's oppressive because it restricts our freedom. It does. It says you can't use that good gift if you're a Christian in any way you want. You use it according to the design of the maker. For Christians, seen within the context of the big story, it, it's beautiful. But we'll come to that big story in a moment. Before we get there, we need to make sense of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, everything goes wrong. You could almost end chapter 2 with dot, dot, dot. They were naked and were not ashamed, dot, 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 until the great lie. A serpent shows up in the garden. He convinces the man and the woman to rebel against God, to try and take over his authority. And sin and brokenness enter the world. And interestingly with it, shame. Once they sin, they sudden, the first thing they realize is that they're naked. You ever had that dream? Where you find yourself out in public and you look down and you go, oh, no. That was their reality. And what did they do? They, they covered themselves with fig leaves. Now, fig leaves don't have great coverage. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They are just not designed by God to cover private parts. They just aren't. If it weren't so tragic, you'd laugh at their pathetic attempt to cover their shame. But what happens is their relationship with each other and with God is broken. Blame enters the equation. They're alienated from God. It's a very strange story, but it actually explains humans and the human condition profoundly because it says since then every human born are just like them. We're all sinners. We've all rebelled against God. We all carry shame. And we all try to We'll try to cover our shame in weird, bizarre ways. They did it with fig leaves. We sometimes do it with a career or a mark. Some hide their shame, some joke about their shame like it's no big deal, some drink their shame away. All of us have shame that we try and hide and all of us are marked by brokenness. All of us. In Genesis, there is so much brokenness, and that brokenness extends to sexuality. In Genesis, there is so much broken sexuality, so much sexual sin. You get to chapter 4, Cain kills his brother, and then one of his descendants kills two blokes, brags about it, and he tells his two wives about it. It's the first polygamy in the Bible, and polygamy always goes bad. There's concubines, there's prostitution, There's attempted rape and actual rape. There's incest. It's worth pausing here. The Bible's claim from the start is that all are sinners, that all are broken, and sin and brokenness goes deep into all of us, including our sexuality. All of us in this room are broken sexually, regardless of orientation. Some people say Jesus never talked about homosexuality, which is true. He never named that term. He did talk about marriage and he did talk about sexual ethics. In Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it said, if a man commits adultery, sleeps with another person, he's committed adultery. Jesus says, I tell you, if a person looks at someone they're not married to with lust in their heart, they have broken the law. They've committed adultery in their heart. Which means, and this is often ignored by straight Christians, 
It means that heterosexual people are not inherently holier or less broken than homosexual people. They're not. Now, as you track God's design for sex through the Bible, you start with this covenant of marriage, which turns into a picture of God's relationship with his people. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God talks about Israel like a homeless, messed up, discarded girl, filthy, that he brings in, cares for, raises and marries. It's quite weird. It's weird to think about God talking about his relationship with Israel as a marriage relationship, as if there's something sexual about it. More fully, in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, Revelation 19, the Bible describes Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. The Bible ends with a celebration of Christ marrying his bride, which is meant to be all those who trust in Jesus. And so here's what's going on here. It means, because Paul says this in Ephesians 5, he says that marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. It means that God created sex and marriage to give us a shadow, a picture of his love for us. The question is, what do you do do with the sexual part of it? Because that feels uncomfortable. I think very simply, the passion of sexual desire and expression is meant to be a shadow of God's passionate desire for his people, not in a sexual way but in a loving way. It says something about the depth of his love and desire for his people. And marriage... It gives us a picture of God's faithfulness, the faithfulness of his love. The faithfulness of covenant love in marriage is a picture of God's faithful love for you and for me. It's a love that's totally committed. And the fruitfulness of marriage that ordinarily in a marriage between a man and a woman where children are a possibility, that God's love has creative force. It brings new life. The thing is, God's love is not seen in a sexual act. It's seen in a sacrificial one on the cross. Let's turn to 1 John 4. We read that at the start. We're told in 1 John 4, this is John writing to a church. He says, let us love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's the origin and the definition of love. He displays and demonstrates the ultimate act of love, and it's not a sexual act. It's his son, naked, brutally hung on a cross. Jesus sacrifices himself in love for his bride. There's a sense in which our culture still gets this, doesn't it? the sacrificial act of love as the final moment of a great story where the hero dies in the place of his beloved. There's a reason why that story echoes in human hearts because it's the story of human history. Jesus becomes sin for the sinner on the cross. He becomes broken for the broken. The son is treated as an enemy so that enemies can become children. And so for Christians, this sacrifice of Christ 
means that any sacrifice we are to make, whether it be sacrificing career or money or even sex in order to be faithful to Jesus, it's, it's always a lesser sacrifice than Christ's. I think one of the challenges for LGBT people who taste the love of Jesus is that of identity. That's what we heard in that video. That being gay became his identity. Identity and sexuality are so tied together. For many it becomes the primary identity marker. And that makes sense. Imagine you hid part of yourself for a really long time for fear and shame and then you came out and found acceptance and love in a new community. You found exhilaration and sexual gratification. It makes sense that that would be a central part of your identity. But Jesus says to people of all sexualities, you are far more than your sexuality. You're made in the image of God. You have an inherent value and worth. You're loved by God so much that he gave his son for you. And for the Christian, we already sung about it. Our primary identity, if you're a Christian, is that you're a child of God. And there, many of us have experienced and found that there is deep, soul-satisfying love to be experienced. Deep love, where we are really known and really loved despite us, where we no longer have to cover our shame with our fig leaves because Christ on the cross, his blood shed for us covers all our shame. The question for tonight, why listen to God about sexuality? Who is he to tell us who and how to love? I think he's the simplest answer. If this sums up what I've said so far, he's our loving creator. He made us, he made sex. And if he is to be God then he must be able to disagree with us. A God with whom we get to bargain about which bits of what he says we'll listen to is not God. He's a genie. But more than that, why listen to him on love? The Bible's answer is because he is love. He loves us more than we know. I mean, back to to 1 John 4. It says this, In this the love of God was made known among us, that he sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. God is love. He didn't look at us and go, oh, wow, you're so pretty and talented. Man, I'm going to love you. You're adorable. He didn't do that. He's that good. He loves us despite us. He loves us more than we know, which means his commands on sex, although for many are difficult, are for our good and joy and human flourishing. You might have have heard those verses read from 1 John 4 and said, well, people of all sorts of different sexualities can love one another sacrificially like Jesus does. And I want to argue with you, I want to agree with you. Yes, people of all sexualities can love sacrificially. But what the Bible says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, is that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Christians have made the mistake of demonising people of different sexualities and saying that everything that they do is evil. It's not true. But the truth of the Bible is that God's good design for sex is in marriage between a man and a woman. That that's for our good. That's for for human flourishing. 
And the end picture of history is a marriage between all those who trust in Jesus and him. Now, before we finish and move to questions, I want to finish with a few words for the different groups of people who might be here tonight. Uh, For those of you, firstly, who are wrestling, struggling with same-sex attraction, I I realise that this teaching is... It might be offensive. It's most certainly difficult. It's especially difficult in a culture that says sexual intimacy is the pinnacle of human experience. It can feel like Jesus is a threat to joy and intimacy, and I want to say clearly knowing Jesus is better than sex. It is. The goal of the Christian life is not heterosexuality. What a lame goal. The goal of the Christian life is Christ-likeness. And I want to encourage you that in the family of God, there can be deep friendship and intimacy. And so beware the lie that to be fully human and satisfied, you need sex. Beware the revisionists who seek to make same-sex sex and those relationships as compatible with God's word. As if when God says something, he really means the opposite. If you want to ask more questions about that, please do. But know that he loves you and he'll be patient with you. And keep asking questions and find satisfaction in the love that's found in Jesus. See, that's not the call only for the same-sex attracted person in the room. It's actually the call for all of us. Any person here who tries to satisfy their soul fully in a marriage relationship will find out very quickly their spouse is not God and cannot satisfy their souls fully. Keep at it for long enough, you'll crush another person and push them away. I think those of us who are Christians, we need to hear God's word on this. We need to repent of our bigotry. We need to apologise to those we've sinned against. See, God God doesn't just call us to be people who hold to the truth. He also calls us to be people who are marked by compassion and grace. We're called to hold to his word, to believe that it's true and good for us. So that when God says sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, as Christians we're called to trust Jesus because he laid down his life for us. But we're also called to show grace and patience towards those who are struggling and towards those who disagree. See, the truth is none of us have arrived yet. Many of us, in fact probably most of us, in varying degrees and at different points in our lives have struggled with sexual sin. Some of us with victory and some of us it's ongoing. But the truth is that Christ is not done with any of us yet. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. See, if our church is to be a safe place for those struggling with all sorts of sexual sin, with same-sex attraction, we, and I realise I am a heterosexual male saying this, But I say to those like me, we must also take Christ-likeness really, really seriously. We need to repent of our pride and our greed and our selfishness, of the sins that we don't seem to take too much issue with. We need to acknowledge the fact that we often treat sexual sin in its own special category as far worse than anything else. See, Christ is calling all of us to take up our cross and follow him. If someone's sitting here tonight who's, who really wrestles with same-sex attraction and they hear Christ's call to follow him, to live a life even of celibacy, and they don't see those of us who are married 
wrestling to with their own sin and confessing their own sin? How could following Jesus seem plausible? It means we need to be more honest about our struggles with sin. We need to create a community where confession is possible. I don't suggest we do it from the microphone after the service. That would be really weird and wrong. But, man, we need friendships with others in our church community where we're free to ask each other how we're going, where we're free to confess and know that we won't get a stack zone of shame but a stack zone of grace and love and care where shame doesn't get covered by fig leaves or ignored but gets covered by Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul, who three times in his writing says that homosexual sex is sinful, in 1 Timothy, after he lists it as a sin, he says a few verses later that he is the worst of sinners. And man, if there's no moral high ground for Paul, who wrote a good chunk of the Bible, there's none for any of us. My hope is that we would be a people who hold to biblical truth and conviction so strongly, all of them, that we would speak truth about God's good design for sex and marriage, that it's pointing us towards Christ and the church and God's passionate, deep and abiding love for his people and that we would do it with the grace and compassion and patience of Jesus, that we do away with phrases like love the sinner but hate the sin, which we seem to only ever apply to sexual sin. We seem real concerned about those of different sexualities and we want to point their sin out, but we're often very, very slow to point the sin out of the materialistic, greedy Australian, married with 2.3 kids, with all the stuff that we jealously want. See, we're not so consistent. Jesus did call people to repent. He did not come to say that people's sin is okay. He came to bleed for it, but man, he showed compassion and kindness. Man, he's patient with us. I think if we got that, our church would be a place that welcomes all and points all to Christ.